I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And what if I told you that when we talk about ways to combat climate change and address our nation's energy needs, we consistently left the safest, most reliable, and most efficient energy source out of the discussion altogether. Joining us this week is an expert in his field, which actually happens to be that exact type of energy. Dr. Nick Turan, PhD, is a professional nuclear engineer driven by climate and energy issues. He is interested in effective means to deploy environment-friendly low-carbon energy at world scale. He works professionally on advanced reactor deployment and runs a small public education nuclear organization, whatisnuclear.com, on the side. Nick, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to first start with something you said in a presentation you did on Thorium, quote, energy gives us freedom. It's a replacement for the labor of human beings, end quote. And that's such a wonderful way to frame it, I think. And it reminds me of a quote from Steve Jobs. He said, quote, one of the things that really separates us from the high primates is we're tool builders. I read a study that measured the efficiency of locomotion of various species on the planet. The condor used the least energy to move a kilometer, and humans came in with a rather unimpressive showing third of the way down the list. But then somebody at Scientific American had the insight to test the efficiency of locomotion for a man on a bicycle. And a human on a bicycle blew a condor away, completely off the top of the charts. And that's what a computer is to me. It's the most remarkable tool we've ever come up with. And it's the equivalent of a bicycle for our minds, end quote. And I feel like in so much of our national level conversation around energy has to do with the climate, which of course is quite important. I think you and I would both agree on that. But I also believe it's a kind of reflection of how much we've come to take energy production for granted. We've kind of lost sight of how much time, you know, the millions upon millions of human labor hours that energy production at scale saves us and how much it allows us to do, create and invent with that found time. I mean, in that same talk, you talked about how, you know, we don't have to go and labor over finding water again because, you know, we don't have to take hours and hours going back and forth from the well because energy production allows that water to be delivered right to us. I mean, it allows you and I the time to have this conversation right now. And nuclear power is the most efficient mode of energy production available to us today, as we'll expand on in this conversation. So if anyone couldn't already tell, I'm a big fan of nuclear energy. And the more I've learned about it, the more frustrated I am that we don't have hundreds of nuclear plants spread across America. So before we get to the how and why nuclear technology is so awesome, how did you first become excited about it to the point where you're now helping to design nuclear reactors for a living? Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. I became interested in energy issues in general as a probably a junior in high school, as I was just talking to a few friends of mine casually about what we wanted to do with our futures and what things we wanted to work on. And a group of us sort of all established that we were interested in energy issues in general. Talk of global warming was already happening at this time. This is around year 2000 or so. And um, I went off to engineering school at University of Michigan, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but knowing that I wanted to do something with energy. And so I went through the first year of basic prerequisites that any engineering school has you go through, still not quite understanding where I was headed. And I ended up going in and having a chat with one of these peer advisors, who was, a, I think, a senior in the engineering college. And she asked me what I was interested in. And I just said, well, I want to do something with energy. 
And she said, well, have you looked into our nuclear engineering department? <laughs> and uh, I'd heard of it, of course, because there's only so many departments at the at the school, but I hadn't really seriously thought of it as an option. I'm not completely sure why, but anyway, it turned out there was a, a way I could take a nuclear course that would satisfy a prerequisite and teach me a little bit more about it. And I went and took that class. It was taught by Professor Kim Kierfoot, and it really explained the basics of nuclear energy in a way that I had never really thought of or understood before. And I just, I was hooked. I thought, this is perfect. This is a very capable energy source and it's not very popular, but the reasons that it's not popular are not intrinsic. And so what a great thing to work on. What a great career I could potentially have trying to have an impact on this in a way that's going to help energy and climate issues. Yeah. And you kind of just touched on the ways in which nuclear power isn't popular, but that lack of popularity, like you said, isn't intrinsic to nuclear power's capabilities and potential, which we're going to kind of spend the next hour kind of really having a, a full-throated discussion on. But before we do, and without going into too much detail too early on, since there are multiple kinds of nuclear reactors in operation today and new technologies being designed for future plants as we're having this conversation right now, what sort of reactor or reactors are you specifically helping design? I have spent Almost all of my professional career working on what are called fast neutron reactors, which are a bit exotic in that there's only a handful of them out of several hundred reactors running in the world. They do have capabilities beyond what a traditional reactor has in terms of sustainability and the toxicity of the waste can be much reduced and so forth. And that's what got me into them in the first place. So yeah, I've spent most of my time on these sort of advanced type fast neutron reactors. And I do imagine that the average listener might be wondering, okay, what is a fast neutron reactor? Mm -hmm. So that kind of leads us into the introduction to nuclear technology that's going to kind of kick off our chat. So okay. on the website Reddit, I'm not sure if you're super familiar with the website. I'm sure you're quite a busy man, but I have a lot of free time on my hands. And there's a community called Explain Like I'm Five, right? Where mm -hmm. complex issues are explained in ways that are easy enough that a child could follow along. So what is nuclear energy exactly? And when and how did we discover it? Well, first of all, I am well aware of Reddit, and I'm relatively active on the page from time to time. So um, you'll see my account, What is Nuclear, chimes in on questions like that. I seek out questions like that specifically because I enjoy answering them. So nuclear energy is an energy resource that was put in atoms by basically by cosmic processes over the last several dozen billion years or so. So various um, cosmic events, supernovas, neutron star mergers, all sorts of crazy things happening in space, basically stored energy in large atoms, atoms of uranium and thorium, which are elements you'll find on the periodic table, as well as in light nuclides, um, which is where they can fuse together, which is what happens in the sun. But in the heavy nuclides, atoms, I should say, we discovered in the 1930s that we can access that energy in a very macroscopic way. And the discovery of fission occurred in 1938, right before World War II. And what fission is, is you take, well, you all probably know that there are inside atoms, there's protons, there's neutrons, and there's electrons. And the atomic nucleus is 
formed of a bunch of protons and neutrons stuck together through something called the strong nuclear force. And it turns out that if you take a free neutron, which we figured out how to get in the early 1930s, if you take a free neutron and shoot it at a large um, uranium atom, sometimes that atom will just absorb the neutron, become unstable, and just split in half. Not perfectly in half, but into two large pieces that add up to a uranium atom. Once that strong nuclear force breaks, now you have two highly charged positive ions right next to each other, and they accelerate away from each other, releasing a huge amount of energy in the form of heat. And so you're basically, you can sort of think of an atom as like exploding when a neutron gets absorbed into it. Now, of course, one atom being split apart in a way that releases energy is still microscopic. Even though it's a huge amount of energy at that scale, it's not going to do anything useful for humanity. That was just one of the two sort of physics miracles that turned out to be hiding from us at this time. The other one was that there's the concept of a chain reaction. So when that atom fissions and splits, it also releases more than two neutrons, extra neutrons. And those extra free neutrons can then go on if you arrange your uranium just right those neutrons can go on and split the other atoms. And then those will split the next atoms and the next atoms, and you get this big chain reaction. And of course, since this happened, this discovery happened right before World War II, the implications of releasing that much energy were immediately recognized as potentially used for bad, for weaponry. And um, the Manhattan Project kicked off and, and actually was able to create a nuclear weapon using the nuclear chain reaction within just a handful of years. During the Manhattan Project, people actually created the first chain reacting stack. They called it a pile. We call it a nuclear reactor. We're um, under a squash court at the University of Chicago. Enrico Fermi created the first self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction, again, in a squash court. So after the Manhattan Project, the world looked to other practical uses of the nuclear chain reaction. And the next big practical one was to power submarines. And so the United States Navy put a lot of time and money into developing powerful nuclear power plants that could work inside of a submarine. And then as soon as they accomplished this, the Nautilus um, launched under Admiral Rickover. And all of a sudden they were going, you know, around the world under the ocean for the first time. Uh, a submarine went up to the North Pole for the first time ever because they had this new almost miraculous energy source from the nuclear fuel. So that's the <laughs> short version. Yeah, no, I, you're definitely condensing a lot of time into only a couple paragraphs there. I guess my follow-up questions would be just trying to both picture it in my own mind and also in the mind of the listener. When you say large atoms, atoms are microscopic. So when you say large atoms, like a uranium being a large atom, for instance, if I understand that correctly, mm -hmm. how does a large atom compare to your average size atom and what makes it large? Good question. You're right. Even large atoms are very small. If you take a look at the periodic table of the elements, you'll see hydrogen up in the top left, which has one proton and one electron. And so that's what I would consider a very small atom, just kind of looking at the nucleus of the atom. And then helium has two protons and two neutrons and two electrons. And so it's four times the mass of a hydrogen. You can go up the chain and every time you go up from one element to the next, it increases in mass number by several. 
the mass numbers are basically averages of all the different types of each element. So for instance, iron says it has a mass of 55.8. Well, <laughs> that's really just an average of all the isotopes of iron. So there's some iron that has mass number one bigger than the previous one. So there's a bunch of different types of iron, all with different numbers of neutrons. And it turns out that the average of that mass is, is 55.8. If you go all the way up to the top of the periodic table of the elements, you'll see uranium sitting there with a mass number of 238. It has 92 protons compared to hydrogen's one proton. And the total mass, when you include all the neutrons, is 238 times heavier than hydrogen. So I guess large in this sense is really talking about the mass more than anything. And then my follow-up question before we kind of start getting into the history of nuclear reactors in general, you know, the average person hears about the nuclear reaction that you're describing, right? Where the atom splits apart and releases a humongous amount of energy. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that might come to their mind is, okay, well, if that same reaction is happening in both a nuclear bomb and a nuclear power plant, why aren't all the nuclear power plants just exploding? What is it about the reaction in a bomb that is causing it to do the massive kinds of damage we saw in Hiroshima, for instance? And that same reaction is happening in a nuclear power plant, but isn't causing that reaction. What's the core difference between those two technologies? Yes, that is a common question, really. And the, the basic physics is certainly the same idea, nuclear chain reaction occurring. The difference is in a nuclear weapon, it's almost 100% made out of atoms that will readily split the instant a neutron is encountered. And this material is very, very rare. And it took the whole Manhattan Project to create the concentrations of that type of material necessary to make a weapon. And it's enriched uranium is one option, and plutonium is the second option. And so in a nuclear weapon... All the atoms are either uranium-235 or fully enriched uranium or plutonium atoms. And so as the neutron emerges out of one part of the chain reaction, it instantly encounters all the time another atom that just splits. And then th that goes on and splits and splits. And so the dynamics of this chain reaction are very rapidly increasing. And this creates this huge amount of heat very rapidly that explodes in a nuclear weapon fashion. Whereas in a nuclear reactor... There are many more types of atoms that you encounter as a neutron going through this. So there are there's structural steel that's holding all the fuel together. It's not fully enriched uranium. It's only a couple percent enriched uranium. Or if there is plutonium in there, there's a bunch of non, the technical term is fissile for these atoms that split readily. So there's non-fissile materials all over the place in the reactor. There's coolant atoms, whether it's water or a liquid metal or whatever your coolant is. And then there's a bunch of extra space as well. So as a neutron comes out, it bounces around off of a bunch of atoms that do not split before it encounters another atom that does split. And that timing, so it takes a long time to do that, is the key difference. And so you actually cannot take a nuclear reactor and get it to go into a dynamic scenario on the order of a nuclear weapon just because those timescales are so infinitesimal. You can't do it without having fully enriched material. So to use a potentially very, very dumbed down and probably not quite accurate metaphor, just to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly, when it comes to enrichment, right, it would be like the difference between, if we're thinking of a massive warehouse that is, let's say, 
80 or 90% full of TNT and mm-hmm. 10 to 20% full of really large pillows versus a less enriched environment in which maybe the warehouse is 20% full of TNT and 80% full of pillows. And the TNT that is exploding in the less enriched environment is exploding against pillows and maybe not setting off all the other TNT that it might be around it all the time, as opposed to a warehouse that's full of entirely TNT or 90% TNT. And as soon as you set off one of those TNT bundles, it's instantly going to set off everything else in the warehouse. Is that kind of the difference? I mean, again, super layman, but is that kind of the difference between a enriched form of uranium that's used in a bomb and a less enriched form that might be used in a reactor? Yes, yes, that's a perfect metaphor, really. And I should go even further to say that in a nuclear reactor, it's not even an increasing amount of heat. I mean, you you can control the reactor so that it's totally steady state, so that the number of atoms that are splitting is exactly equal to the number of atoms that split in the previous generation of the chain reaction. So it's just this sort of nice, constant emission of heat when you're running a nuclear reactor, as opposed to something that's ramping up at some some rate, even if it's a slow rate. Great, great analogy. So it would be the difference between when you're talking about like a constant heat versus a ramping up. Let's say it's the difference between a um, your fireplace and a forest fire, right? right? Like your fireplace is, is like a constant form of heat that is, of course, hot, but it's contained. It's not going to keep going versus you start a fire in a forest. And especially here in California, mm-hmm. that spreads pretty fast. Right. Yes. Another good analogy. (laughs) (laughs) 90% I speak in analogies in my day-to-day life. So uh, that's usually how I understand the world. But when the average person imagines a nuclear reactor in their mind, they're most likely picturing like a giant blocks-wide structure with huge concrete cylinders the size of skyscrapers, right? So what are these kinds of nuclear plants called? And what is the technology that is driving them? The Traditional or the most common type of nuclear reactor producing civilian electricity in the world today is called a light water reactor. And that just means it's cooled with regular water. It's called light water to just differentiate it from a very exotic type of water called heavy water, which uses deuterium instead of hydrogen, which is just anyway, heavy hydrogen instead of hydrogen in the H2O. That's beside the point. These are scaled up versions of Admiral Rickover's submarine reactor, effectively. So there's this relatively simple, pretty reliable type of reactor that Rickover developed for the submarines. And that same technology was basically just scaled up, capturing economies of scale so that it could compete with coal at the time. This is in the 60s. And once they reached the size that could compete with coal, uh, utilities purchased these reactors and they now power there's about a hundred of them in the united states and they produce about 20 percent of the total electricity in this country as i said earlier there's about 435 of them worldwide there's uranium fuel in pins arranged into a nuclear core that's capable of sustaining this chain reaction and there's space between these pins where water can flow and so as the atoms are splitting and it heats the fuel pins up you pump water past them and the water heats up and carries the heat off where it eventually just turns to steam and spins a turbine. And at that point, the rest of the power plant looks like it could for some kind of combustion plant, like a coal plant. It's taking some heat source, boiling water, spinning a turbine, which then spins a generator to make electricity. Actually, almost all types of nuclear reactors for power are just a fairly sophisticated way to boil water. 
really interesting to think about because you think of like the steam powered engine from like the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it sounds like we have a comparatively more exotic and advanced energy source than let's say the steam powered engine of the days of Mark Twain. But ultimately what that newer exotic form of uranium powered technology is ultimately doing is kind of at the end of it, the same exact thing. That's right. It's because it's a pretty good way to convert heat into electricity, this um, thermodynamic ranking cycle, which indeed dates back to the Industrial Revolution. So what is the story in kind of a Cliff's Notes sort of way, because we'll dig into this as we continue, but what's the story of nuclear reactors in the United States? And how did we get to the point where this technology is either feared or grossly misunderstood? One of my favorite topics. Um, Geez, so how to start? Well, so after the the Navy successfully launched Nautilus and the submarines, again, we started trying to build commercial power stations. And we built them. We built many different types. Nobody knew exactly what type of nuclear reactor would be the most economical back in the 50s. But it was a very hot topic. And unbelievable amount of research and development went into nuclear technology in the 50s and 60s. The smartest people in the world were all working on nuclear reactor technology. And as I go back and read the archives, I'm always just astounded at the things that they thought of and tested and accomplished at this time. What ended up happening as they tested out just dozens of super exotic types of reactors, the light water reactors performed the best. And this is partially because they had a head start thanks to the Navy program. It sort of speaks to their simplicity and compactness and whatnot. So all of a sudden we had Westinghouse and General Electric and combustion engineering building and selling large power stations of this basic design all around the country and and similar programs going on in, in other countries, just a little bit delayed. So I'm kind of talking U.S. only. So it went on for a while. Cost parity with coal was notionally reached sometime around 1965. And so there was just this massive number of orders of nuclear plants that started coming in. And so they were all under construction. The whole fleet was constructed in the 60s and 70s. And then as the 70s started coming along and these plants were operating, several things happened. For one thing, interest rates went up and nuclear plants are very capital intensive. And then another thing was that people who were capable of building nuclear reactors kind of got tied up. And so there were delays just based on labor issues. And so now you have interest rates plus delays and all of a sudden your construction costs are going up. And then as we gained operational experience with the reactors, there were incidents. There were things that were discovered that needed to be retrofitted. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, well, it was called the Atomic Energy Commission at the time, which was overseeing the safety consolidated regulations into more standardized plans that ended up requiring a little bit more paperwork, a little bit more quality assurance. And there was basically a bit of a ratchet on the construction costs. So costs of construction increased. And if coal had just stayed at its same price, there probably wouldn't be much of a nuclear fleet today. But actually, it turns out at the same time, coal went through huge cost escalations as well, largely because people started worrying about acid rain and other pollutants. And so they started adding much more environmental capabilities to the existing coal fleet. So anyway, they sort of bootstrapped in price together. And of course, we had a couple... There was the Three Mile Island accident in Pennsylvania in the late 1970s. And that came out at the same time that there was a movie made about the China syndrome, which is, you know, there was just sort of a confluence of 
pop culture and actual reactor incidents. So people just started saying like, hey, are these things safe? Like, isn't this kind of scary? Oh, and, and I have to mention all through this time, the Cold War has been ramping up and there's now not just nuclear weapons like we made in the Manhattan Project, but thermonuclear weapons, which are just, you know, city destroying horrifying bombs that people were starting to really worry a lot about. And and as we talked about fallout from nuclear weapons, people associated that with what nuclear reactors can do. And it was all sort of conflated. So this fear sort of bootstrapped, costs bootstrapped. And then there were incidents. There was Three Mile Island. And then in 1986 in the Ukraine, there was Chernobyl, which really was a horrible accident. And at this point... <laughs> all these things came together and basically the orders for all the reactors basically stalled out. We peaked at like a hundred plants and it's been sitting there at a hundred for <laughs> many years now uh, without really building a whole lot more. The plants did improve their performance through the decades dramatically. They used to only run 60% of the time and now they're up to 90% of the time. And so that's how they've sort of maintained uh, viability in general. Yeah. That's the whirlwind big picture story. <laughs> Yeah, I think that kind of the genesis of nuclear power has created a kind of bifurcation in the human mind of what it's capable of, right? I, I work in the advertising world, and if <laughs> if nuclear power was uh, anthropomorphized into a, a human being, I would say that they would have a hard time marketing themselves, right? It would be like if you had someone who... <laughs> it would be like if you had someone who had dedicated uh, their entire adult life to going around the world and feeding people and housing people, and they were just entirely benevolent. But then if you dug into their biography, like right at the start, around the ages of like 18 to 21, they like murdered a bunch of people. <laughs> you would have like a, you could understandably have some yeah. conflicted feelings, right? You'd be like, man, I'm, I mean, I'm excited about all the wonderful things they're doing, but uh, it seems mm -hmm. like they got their start in kind of a way that freaks me out a little bit. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of the problem that a lot of people have when they're conceptualizing nuclear technology, right? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned some of those accidents and disasters. So let's dive right into that because that's actually the next section of our conversation. Okay. HBO's award-winning Chernobyl reintroduced nuclear disaster into the American mind. And when many folks think about nuclear technology, it's difficult for them to decouple them from its accompanying accidents and meltdowns and disasters. Um, you mentioned some of the larger scale meltdowns that include Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and of course, there's also Fukushima. Mm -hmm. But there have been other smaller core meltdowns from around 1952 to 1985. And if we include all the nuclear related accidents, you know, dozens of incidents throughout modern history, what do we say to Americans and people around the world who might be excited, you know, about the amazing potential of nuclear power, but worry about future potential incidents? This is certainly the first or second thing that comes to people's mind when they first start asking themselves about nuclear power. And it is a it's a nuanced and complicated topic. And it kind of goes to <laughs> there's a lot of human psychology in it, really. So Chernobyl is almost a household name in many parts of the world for good reason it's it was a bad accident but it's interesting to note that um, if you ask people if they can name a natural gas explosion that killed you know dozens of people very few can if you ask about you know does anyone remember the ban chow 1975 dam failure that killed almost 200,000 people no one's heard of it <laughs> and it's not to say that it's okay to have accidents but it's just the industry of producing energy or any any industry has various risks and things will go wrong and have gone wrong it's almost interesting that nuclear has had well i think there's some characteristics of just radiation being sort of a mysterious scary 
ghostly type thing that you can't really sense, but you know can be hurting you, even though you don't know if it's there or not. There's just something about that that dives into our imagination and really amplifies incidents that happen. And so it turns into these major news stories whenever there's any kind of nuclear event, whereas other industrial accidents that may have more consequence on more people don't seem to to make it as much. So one of my, <laughs> this is maybe inappropriate, but a, a colleague of mine has joked that if there were more nuclear accidents, people would go to page three in the headlines <laughs> instead of page one, which anyway, that's not a real um, approach here. We, we obviously don't want to have any more incidents. But you do have to sort of ask yourself, I mean, it's a cost-benefit type thing. So we have 80% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuel right now. And fossil fuel, if you just forget about climate change, fossil fuel kills between 4 and 8 million people every single year just from air pollution alone. This number is astronomical. It's basically a public health emergency. You're breathing in smoke particulates and it's causing various lung and heart diseases it doesn't capture the headlines like there's no hbo series about the four million people who died this year from air pollution and why not and it turns out if you go ahead and build nuclear plants that offset fossil fuel they're dramatically safer even if you have a couple accidents someone did a calculation once where if you just take a reactor like chernobyl and run it for five years and then have it explode like chernobyl and cause that whole incident that injures fewer people than a coal plant running normally for five years. And so the comparison is just, it's almost off the chart. We're going to get into all of the safety benefits of nuclear technology shortly, because it is, as you've mentioned, one of the safest forms of energy, if not the safest form of energy available to us today. But I want to quickly just touch on something you mentioned about if more nuclear disasters happen, it would be on page three rather than page one. And it does sound like a rather callous thing to say, but it's not because what you're getting at is something basically known as the black swan effect, which is mm-hmm. the rarer an event is, the larger it looms in the mind. So 9-11, you know, was tragic, right? But 50,000 people a year die from car accidents in the United States every single year, again and again and again and again. And it's its commonality it's, it's kind of like, oh, well, then, you know, it's just something that happens and we can kind of expect it that allows it to recede into the back of the mind and be on, you know, page 20 rather than page one. Whereas as we move into autonomous vehicles and self-driving cars, the very first time someone dies inside of a self-driving car, it's going to be on the front page of every mm-hmm. single newspaper in the world. Yeah. And that's the difference, right? So you make a really good point. And I think it's important to mention that to the listener. It's like, If four to eight million people are dying every single year from coal-powered plants, it's the fact that four to eight million people are dying every year that makes it not news, which is incredibly dark and depressing if you think about it. Four to eight million people dying a year from an energy source should be at the front page of every single paper every single day Mm -hmm. until it's fixed. And yet a couple dozen people tragically die or are grievously injured with something like Fukushima or a Chernobyl. And all of a sudden, it stops that entire energy industry from proliferating. So yeah, I just wanted to put a fine point on that because it seems like the rarer a technology is, the more attention is given to any potential harm it may cause. And it's kind of funny. If we proliferated nuclear technology to the extent where it was as abundant as coal or natural gas or oil, 
it would not only cause far fewer deaths, but ironically, its proliferation would cause less attention to be given to any one of the very few deaths that nuclear power would cause. It's in fact the commonality of our current energy fuel sources that allow those deaths to recede into the background. That's right. And I don't want to minimize the hazards of radiation. I mean, radiation is a hazardous substance, so to speak, but so is fire. Fire is very hazardous, um, but the benefit we can get from fire and the benefit we can get from judicious use of nuclear technology can far outweigh the, the hazards. Even fossil fuel, I mean, to talk about the air pollution deaths, I should also mention that you know it's hard to calculate how many lives are saved by the existence of the energy you know, that's powering the hospitals and industry and pharmaceutical world you know, that we have today. So <laughs> it is all very complicated. Another big concern that folks may have is around the issue of nuclear waste, right? I mean, if you've watched movies within the last several decades, chances are that sooner or later, you've seen images of spent nuclear rods being transported on trucks or stored underground to protect the public from mm -hmm. potentially harmful radiation. So I guess the question people may pose to you is, won't more nuclear reactors equal more nuclear waste? And how much waste does an average nuclear reactor produce? And if we build more reactors, where would and could we store all this waste safely? So, yeah, that is the other of the two things that people immediately wonder about someone who's saying that nuclear technology is, is useful for humanity. <laughs> As you split more atoms to make more electricity, those leftover atoms that have already been split, there will be more of that. And that is called nuclear waste. There's a I would call it a myth out there that people say nuclear waste is one of the most dangerous things known to man, and we have no way of storing it, and it's totally irresponsible to continue running nuclear reactors because of it. And I would say that really falls apart very quickly upon scrutiny. It is very hazardous, but it's not dangerous. The difference being it's not out there hurting people because we can contain the hazard just like we contain um, other types of hazards in the world. So the sort of almost magical thing, if I can say such a thing, about nuclear waste is just how little of it is produced per energy that you produce while you create it. And this is really, this is this nuclear, this strong nuclear force physics advantage over any other energy source. So you can get 100% of your total energy, not just electricity, but all of your transportation and the industrial energy associated with your life. As an average citizen of the United States, for your whole life, like 88 years, and it'll produce about one and a half soda cans of nuclear waste. Wow. It's so small. I mean, that's, compare that to something that uses a, a chemical form of energy, whether it's the batteries associated with an intermittent source or any fossil fuel, and it's a factor of two million. You would have two million times more material that you have to account for for your own life than this nuclear stuff. And yes, the stuff in the can is hazardous. You do not want to stand next to it without any shielding. But that's been something that we've been really good at doing. We've created steel and concrete containers and the nuclear waste from huge power stations that have powered cities for decades, all sitting out in the parking lot in these big cement, they're called dry casks, and they have passively cooled. There's no power to them. 
they're just sitting there in interim storage and they've never injured a single person. And again, meanwhile, you have all these other energy sources out there that are actively causing climate change. They're actively killing people through air pollution. And so, I mean, in the face of those threats to point at nuclear waste and say like, this is unacceptable is really surprising to me. And I really don't think it makes any sense. Sure. You can talk about long-term disposal. I mean, it stays hazardous for a long time. That's sort of unique. Most hazardous materials stays hazardous forever. And nuclear waste, the fact that it gets less hazardous with time as the atoms sort of slowly release their energy is pretty unique. It does take a long time to get to the point where you could like hold it in your hand. And so we have designed what are called deep geologic repositories, which are basically you dig into crystalline bedrock or a salt deposit, geologically stable formations that we know for a fact water that has been in one place has only moved a centimeter in the last million years. <laughs> um, and you put these highly robust canisters with many different layers down there and then you seal it off. That's so far removed from the biosphere that no proper engineer will ever tell you anything's 100% safe. But the relative safety of that compared to just burning <laughs> natural gas and causing climate change and air pollution is all, it's just, it can't be compared. So nuclear has one of the best types of waste in that it's very, very small. And so therefore it has a very, very small impact on the humans and animals and the environment. And it's also completely practical to store all of it in a completely safe place. Another a visual for you is that all the nuclear waste ever produced, making 20% of the United States' electricity from nuclear plants over the last several decades, you can stack it all up in a football field and it's like 30 feet tall. So it's just, and again, imagine 2 million football fields, 30 feet tall for any other energy source, which is the competition. Yeah, when you put it in those terms, nuclear waste is phenomenally safe compared to other forms of energy. One thing that you mentioned was that in comparing nuclear waste's half-life and the fact that it does become less hazardous or dangerous over time, you mentioned something which I, I haven't really considered much, and I think probably the average listener hasn't either. You said that most hazardous material stays hazardous forever. What kind of material are you speaking of specifically, and in what way could we compare it to, let's say, nuclear waste? Well, like mercury. Mercury is, a, is an industrial waste that's used in various processes, and we bury it. If someone digs up mercury a billion years from now it's still a neurotoxin i mean unless we evolved you know so our brains are immune to it you know so it doesn't matter how long you keep it away it's still going to be hazardous no matter where some future civilization finds it and there's lots of various types of industrial wastes that we put in landfills that have that kind of characteristic so that's all i'm talking about I, this is kind of a joke, but it sounds like one of the ways we could get the average person to think differently about uranium is just start putting it in sushi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because when you word, when you talk about mercury, I mean, it's an intensely dangerous, I mean, that just what you said about it being as dangerous a billion years from now as today. And everyone knows that mercury is bad for pregnant women and bad in high doses for anybody, but it's in some of the very food that we eat. And it, it's so interesting to me how we conceptualize things like uranium, plutonium, thorium, which we'll talk about in a bit, differently than we conceptualize really any other chemical or element in existence. And I think it does get back to what you were saying of how it's almost this ghost-like, it really comes probably down all to radiation and how it's this kind of ghost-like thing that we can't see, but it could be around us. And it just feels like with better marketing, we could really turn this around. 
one thing I've imagined is like, geez, it'd be nice if every house could have a Geiger counter in it and kids could run around and, you know, stick it on the granite countertop and see that, geez, there's radiation all around us all the time at very low levels. And we, we seem to be doing just fine. <laughs> I feel like just having a detector so you can kind of sense it, you know, extending our own senses in a way that you can see that it's there. Take it on an airplane and see that when you're up above a little bit of the atmosphere, the cosmic rays coming down from natural outer space are quite radioactive. <laughs> anyway, I just feel like that would maybe help people become a little bit more familiar with, with at least very low dose radiation, which again, we've lived since the beginning of time with. And, and again, I don't want to say high doses of radiation are again, indeed hazardous. It's again, just like fire. You don't want to jump into a, a furnace but if you go outside on a warm day, it won't hurt you. There's a similar case to be said with low-dose radiation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's radiation in bananas. We eat those. Right. It's everywhere. So I think you've pretty clearly established that the waste can be stored safely. But I think the last lingering thought of danger for the average person when they think about nuclear technology is weapons, right? The elements used in nuclear reactors and the waste that those reactors produce can be potentially used in nuclear weapons. So to put the question to you, doesn't the existence of nuclear reactors increase the potential risk for nuclear weapon proliferation? That is a fairly challenging question. I think there's definitely different sides to that question. I, I do think that if there are more people who know more about nuclear technology, then maybe there's a chance that there could be an easier breakout scenario where somebody who doesn't have nuclear weapons gets them. But I would also say that nuclear technology knowledge will not disappear if we shut down all nuclear reactors, especially with sort of the geopolitical implications of nuclear weapons. That knowledge is out there. And will never go away. And it really, I mean, we did it, the United States did it in the 40s, knowing nothing in advance in three years. And now that everything is known and all this technology has been developed, somebody can dig a big cavern in a mountain and run uranium enrichment and have a nuclear weapon. I mean, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's not going to be precluded by getting rid of nuclear reactors. And I think the increase of probability that that would happen if there were more nuclear reactors is relatively marginal compared to just the simple fact that like, if somebody really wants a nuclear weapon, they can go and make one. That knowledge will never go away. Right. And so what you're saying basically is that the knowledge of how to make a nuclear bomb has been around for so many decades and the waste that is made from a nuclear reactor is already stored so safely that it would almost be if someone was really dedicated to doing it, if a country was really dedicated to doing it, they wouldn't be going and trying to steal waste from a nuclear reactor in France or Germany or in the United States. There would be other ways for them to go about it already, that those two things aren't linked. Nuclear reactors and their waste is not linked to a country's ability to research and produce their own weapons. Am I getting that right? That's right. Yes. You can go out into high uranium ore and dig up a bunch of uranium and take it down and stick it in spinny tubes and you can make nuclear weapons material. No nuclear reactor needed. You just need centrifuges and natural uranium. So what's easier? Either break into quasi-military guarded facility and steal highly radioactive material that's you know, of questionable, if any, utility for weapons, or go get some benign natural uranium and spin it in the centrifuge and make pristine nuclear weapons material. I mean, what scenario is the one that you should worry more about? <laughs> I'd say the latter. Yeah, I would agree. Very well said. You once said in a talk that 60% of Americans believe that nuclear power contributes to climate change. 
Where do you think this misconception comes from? And speaking completely bluntly, why are these people so incredibly wrong? <laughs> I wish I knew. When I when I heard that, I just couldn't believe it. And I sort of smacked my head and shook it. I just don't understand where that came from. And I think it's just, it must just be, you know, society churning over this basic concept that like, well, nuclear is kind of bad and things that are bad are usually bad for the climate. And so there must just be some kind of association like that. It's not just the United States, but in France, young people more and more think, oh, they must be emitting a bunch of CO2 as well. But in reality, you know, um, when you look at the full life cycle from digging up the raw materials for both the fuel and the facility, and then all the way out to greenfield decommissioning, nuclear is among the lowest carbon energy sources known to humanity. It has 11, there's a 12 grams CO2 per kilowatt hour. It's on par with wind, which is at 11. Solar is 40, natural gas is 490, and coal is like 800. So it's just so ridiculously low carbon. And yet people, I don't know. I, I don't know. I've never seen anybody like spread misinformation about that. I mean, there's okay. I've seen a few people do that, but no one who really is getting into society. So it's just a, it's just a failure in knowledge and education. I've done talks at science classes around the Seattle area. And a lot of times, you know, the science teachers will be like, geez, I didn't know half that stuff you said. Like, I should look into this again. I just didn't know. And so it's just not really talked about. I think maybe we could blame the industry to a degree since after some of the accidents, the industry sort of seems to have thought to itself, hey, maybe if we just don't tell anybody we're here, they'll stop protesting us or something like that. And so they just hid their head in the sand almost rather than saying, I've never seen a, an advertisement that says nuclear is low carbon energy. But I see fracked natural gas advertisements with a bunch of wind turbines in the background every day. <laughs> so maybe the industry just hasn't done a good job of, of selling its capabilities. Yeah, we need a big nuclear lobby. I think what it comes down to is without proper education, the human mind is actually quite bad at connecting cause and effect. I remember reading that in the Middle Ages, the belief was <laughs> flies spontaneously were born out of bad meat, like meat that had gone bad. <laughs> so if you left meat that had gone bad out in the open long enough, that flies would spontaneously come into being because they saw this kind of cause and effect. And to the human mind, you're like, I leave meat out long enough, it goes bad and flies are born, which if you're just looking at it, you're like, okay, I guess. But now we know way more. And we're like, look at those dumb dumbs. But the thing is, is when the average person looks at a wind turbine, they're not thinking about all of the things that it took to make the turbine, which of course, produces carbon. What they're seeing is, oh, look at that gigantic fan. And what could, you know, that's just, it's just wind, but they're not thinking about everything that led up to the construction and building of the turbine. And I think similarly, when the average person looks at a huge nuclear reactor that takes up blocks and has those scary looking cylinders, which all they're doing is releasing steam. But when they look at it, they're thinking, oh man, big, huge, corporate looking, gigantic structure. It must be producing carbon. Yeah. And it's really just all about education and marketing. And you, like you said, like natural gas is producing these videos that show solar and wind farms in the background. We just need to educate the populace about how incredibly safe nuclear power is. We can't leave them to their own devices in the same way that we, we couldn't leave people to their own devices in terms of how flies were born. In terms of lobbying, I mean, there is a there's a nuclear industry lobby that does a ton of great work. But in a sense, they're a little bit paralyzed from saying the really positive things about nuclear too strongly because everyone who owns a nuclear power plant is a 
big utility. And big utilities have many types of generators, including fossil fuel ones. And so the utilities aren't going to go around trashing their fossil infrastructure just to make nuclear look good. And so the major owners of nuclear plants have like no interest at all in talking about what's so good about nuclear. That's another thing that kind of holds back the PR, which is a little bit why, you know, my friends and I in college made this web page. We thought back then, you know, maybe if we just make a web page talking about nuclear being good, that'll solve all these problems. But of course, it takes much more than that, as we've learned. When we try and talk about how many lives nuclear power has saved, I think people can have a hard time wrapping their minds around that concept. You know, it's not like nuclear power is running around in a human body saving people from forest fires. Mm -hmm. So what are those life-saved estimates and how are we conceptualizing them when we say things like, oh, 1.8 million lives have been saved by nuclear technology? What does that really mean? It's these epidemiological studies that I think uh, I've, I've seen people just straight up reject. They're like, oh, I don't believe epidemiological studies. Like those are statistical deaths, not real deaths. So it is a little bit abstract. It certainly isn't a nuclear plant swooping in and, and saving the day and getting its picture taken for the front page. But yeah, the, the number you gave comes from this paper. I think it was from 2013 by Karecha and James Hansen was the co-author who's, a, who's just famous in the climate science community as a NASA scientist who first talked about climate change to Congress in like 1988. They basically said, okay, given how many people statistically are dying because of air pollution, and then given how much nuclear power there is, we can kind of say, well, if there weren't those nuclear plants, there would be the average energy source, which is largely fossil fueled. And so this many more people would have died from air pollution. And so therefore, oh, but a nuclear killed, you know, this many people from the various accidents. And then they just compare the numbers. And in the balance, it turns out, as you know, nuclear is much safer. And the number you gave, it saved 1.8 million lives as of 2013. And then, of course, it's increased since then. So it sounds kind of like what you're saying is for every nuclear plant that's being built, that's a coal plant that isn't being built. So when you were talking about the deaths caused by coal every year around the world, if nuclear plants were in the place of those coal plants that are causing four to eight million deaths a year, those are four to eight million deaths that wouldn't happen. Do I have that correct? Yes. Yes. That's the basic concept. Absolutely. Yeah, because I think that it's just it's difficult for people to kind of wrap their heads around like a negative. It's much easier to conceptualize actual deaths and it's easier to conceptualize lives that are physically saved by someone proactively doing something. But I think one of the again, it all comes back down to marketing, right? I think what can be difficult for people to conceptualize around something like nuclear technology is you're kind of trying to prove a negative. But that stat that you mentioned earlier about the 48 million lives lost every year due to coal, it's really valuable to talk about. What if we replaced all those plants with something safer? And mm -hmm. because nuclear technology is so safe, we're talking about those 48 million lives that wouldn't be lost. Right. I think it's extra challenging to talk about in many parts of the United States, which, th which these days have pretty clean air. Yeah, there's a forest fire now and then, and there's still smog in some cities. But you go to Beijing, for instance, or other northern parts of China in the winter where they use so much coal, you know, just for heating people really can feel the health effects. And so in a place like that, when you say, well, if we build a nuclear plant, there will be less of this toxic smog and, and we will die less. It's very concrete to that group of people. And so when you're living in that kind of a air pollution environment, I think this kind of argument is a lot easier to quickly understand. Whereas when you're living in Seattle and it's beautiful, clean air all the time, you're a little bit distant from air pollution problems. 
And Seattle does have wonderful air. I love it up there. Okay. I think you make a great point about how in developing countries or even more developed countries, like let's say China, which is developing rather rapidly, it's easier to conceptualize that kind of cost effect analysis. But that takes us to the issue of cost. Mm -hmm. In addition to misguided public resistance to nuclear power, one of the main hurdles is just cost. From a 2016 article on nuclear reactors by the MIT Technology Review, they said, quote, Unlike wind and solar, which have gotten far less expensive over time, nuclear plants have become much more so. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the inflation-adjusted cost of building a nuclear plant rose from $1,500 per kilowatt of capacity in the early 1960s to more than $4,000 a kilowatt by the mid-1970s. That's only a little over a decade. In its latest calculation in 2013, the Energy Information Administration found that that figure had risen to more than $5,500, which is more expensive than a solar power plant or onshore wind farm, and far more than a natural gas plant. The upfront cost is amplified by the large size of the reactors. At the average cited by the EIA, a one gigawatt plant could cost $5.5 billion, which is a risky investment for any company, end quote. So in your view, Nick, why did the cost of nuclear power jump so significantly from the 60s to the 70s? And why has the price continued to climb to a point where it's so cost prohibitive to build a new plant? This is indeed the real issue. Um, and, and the whole industry is seeking to find ways to bring costs back down. So why did they get expensive in the United States in the first place? I talked about it briefly earlier on with the interest rates going up and additional retrofits needed as quality assurance programs ramped up as the result of a couple incidents um, or near misses or other just technological issues that people came across as the plants were gaining operational experience. And then there was this lull in reactor builds. And so the numbers that people are talking about, like the EIA today, are sort of for a new build of a nuclear plant in the United States, given the current nuclear build capability, which basically has been dormant for 30 years. And so really, people just have forgotten how to build nuclear power plants in the United States. There have been a few builds recently, and they have, you can only describe them as at least a little bit boondoggly um, with huge cost overruns and schedule slippage running way out. And that's really pulling a lot of those numbers up. And you're seeing similar things in other parts of the world, like in Europe, the UK and France, um, Finland. They've had complex issues during construction where it's just they're trying a slightly new technology, but when it shows up on the site, it doesn't quite fit together and they have to do all these field modifications. And because of nuclear quality assurance, every modification made in the field has to go back to the engineer and be reanalyzed and signed off on and then come back to the field. Whereas if you're building, you know, a commercial grade building, you may make lots of modifications in the field and note it on the drawing and move on, but you don't have to sit there and wait for reanalysis. So there's just an element of it's hard to construct these things if you haven't been doing it for a while. But on the other hand, there are places like, for instance, South Korea, China, Russia, who have been building fairly standardized, large reactor designs for a long time. And they've maintained that expertise through the years. And they are still building and delivering large nuclear reactors at very reasonable and competitive prices. Another element in the United States is that because of fracking and horizontal drilling, natural gas here is extraordinarily cheap. Whereas in places like China, they aren't interested in being so reliant on an energy resource that they have less of. So the comparison is easier to tilt towards something like nuclear. Those are the basics. 
I should also mention that wind and solar have become unbelievably cheap to build a generator. I mean, the, the solar prices falling by like a factor of 10 in 10 years is really a, a true energy miracle. And that really is going to help with a lot of climate issues. But a lot of the prices that people report are the cost, well, the sun is shining. And hidden from that are the costs of all the generators that are providing the backup and maybe aren't running as much during the day. Somebody has to pay for that. And so what you're seeing is solar when the sun is shining is dirt cheap and that's highlighted in headlines daily. But the cost of electricity in places that have high penetrations of intermittent renewables is increasing. And part of that is because, yeah, you have these natural gas turbines that are sitting there on low power throughout the day, but you're still paying for, you know, their capital costs and their maintenance. And then they fire up for the evening peak and then run through the night. You're sort of double building that capacity and someone has to pay for it. And that shows up in the electricity rates. It's actually really nuanced and complicated to compare energy sources that have very different characteristics, like can't run at night or turn off for 10 full days, one month a year, like wind often does in major regions. It's complicated. Yeah, that's an interesting point about how when we talk about costs around solar, which I'm a huge fan of, we don't really talk about all of the costs involved. I mean, it would almost be like if I hired someone very cheaply, like at the base federal minimum wage to work for me for eight hours a day, and I bragged to my boss about how affordable that labor is. But then after the eight hour work period, I hired someone at three times the cost to work into the night to finish up the work that the person in the eight hour span couldn't complete. And all I was talking about was how cheap I was able to get things done in that one eight hour workday period, while not talking to the public about all the work that was happening after 5pm at three times the cost, it would feel rather dishonest. I mean, I'm a huge fan of things like solar and wind. But if we're going to talk about them in an honest way and compare them to things like nuclear power and other energy sources, we need to talk about all of the costs that are folded into it, right? Exactly. And that's another wonderful analogy. You are good at that. Of course, people also highlight the carbon impact. They say, oh, we're running you know, totally low carbon for this time. And then, But if you look at the whole day integrated, all this carbon from the natural gas um, really keeps it not looking good. And, and of course, the comparison between France's total emissions of their electric grid versus Germany's really drives this point home. So how can we incentivize investors to pursue nuclear technology when startup costs are so high and often regulation is so kind of cumbersome? Mm -hmm. And how do we, I mean, it almost sounds like a chicken and an egg problem that you're talking about, right? Because we've kind of lost, as you said, the ability in some ways to make nuclear power because our ability to do it has kind of atrophied. It's the whole, if you don't use it, you lose it thing. But because it's a part of our energy structure, it's not like another product where we can say, oh, you know, we've forgotten how to make XYZ, but we'll just, we'll have people in other countries make it for us and then import it. But because of how fragile, I guess, from a security standpoint, our energy infrastructure is, we can't really do that. We can't outsource our energy production. So how do we incentivize investors to reinvest in a nuclear technology and also incentivize engineers and, you know, our smartest folks to reinvest their energy into nuclear? Yeah, there's so many different options that people talk about taking for this. So I'll, I'll try to go through a few. And the build that we're doing of two AP1000s down at plant Vogel will be beneficial. It has had major delays, but it's a new experience and it looks like it's going to get completed. And so that will hopefully, that could help bootstrap more plants, but it doesn't, there aren't a bunch of these other plants in the pipeline. People aren't ordering them. Even the new experience that we just got from that, you know, is at risk of sort of atrophying a little bit. 
you raised the the point about importing technology from other <laughs> countries and you know in south korea learned how to build large commercial scale nuclear plants from a united states company called combustion engineering which was kind of going out of business and sold them a whole design and the south koreans took it that design worked closely with the american original designers the koreans perfected the design they serialized it they got really good at delivering it and now they're selling the descendants of that reactor around the world they just have built four in the united arab emirates and so you know, the concept of sort of bringing that back, buying these reactors from the South Koreans and then having them sort of pass the knowledge back to us is almost a beautiful symmetry. I mean, it's the knowledge that we once invested in them, they can sort of reinvest in us. And from a construction management and nuclear deployment point of view, I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing. And that would help us rebuild our nuclear capacity, which I think would benefit us from a national security point of view. Other countries that are doing this are maybe less friendly. So China and Russia are both talking seriously about exporting large plants that they're very good at building to places with huge increasing energy demand. So Eastern Europe, Nigeria is very interested in purchasing some nuclear plants from whoever, you know, whoever's going to sell them one, which could certainly be either of those two countries. They have somewhere around 200 million people now going up to 500 million in population by 2050. So these are like massive <laughs> energy needs uh, that have to be filled. So anyway, another option that people have talked about a lot is to build small reactors. Small modular reactors is sort of the buzzword started back in 1984, actually. And the idea there is to say, well, the cost of money is too high, so let's do a much smaller capital project. It'll be much lower risk. A much smaller entity can take on the risk. And maybe it'll, it'll be suitable for specialized markets, whether it's a remote area or some kind of special grid. Maybe it's a mine or somewhere where electricity is expensive for some reason. Now. Traditionally, as I mentioned earlier, reactors got very big because of economies of scale. It doesn't cost twice as much money to make a reactor that makes twice as much power. And of course, power is proportional to revenue. So the costs get better as you get bigger. But there's a counter hypothesis now that many people are exploring that says maybe if you could serialize factory production of small nuclear reactors and then rail ship them and just have them kind of drop off at the site and turn on, maybe you could capture economies of mass production that could perhaps meet and perhaps exceed the economies of scale traditionally used. That's a very popular hypothesis in the nuclear industry right now. I'm not personally convinced that it's a certainty. We've built lots of very small reactors in very remote areas, including like Antarctica, where PM3A powered a military base for 10 years. But the costs were just... It was prohibitive. It ended up being cheaper, even in Antarctica, to ship down barrels of oil and run the facility that way. So the costs of small nuclear have traditionally been quite high. And so to meet and exceed that history, I think, is, is a big hurdle. Not to say it's impossible. And I understand the hypothesis. But I, anyway, I just sort of think it's maybe unlikely. As we're trying to build out thousands of gigawatts of power to decarbonize, you'd really have to make a lot of little small ones, which again, is, is doable. There's lots of internal combustion engines and, and they do just fine. When I think of small, modular, potentially less expensive, my mind, at least in my layman's understanding of this technology, immediately goes to molten salt reactors, which is a technology we've known about for decades, but has only recently kind of come back into the public imagination. 
What are molten salt reactors and how are they different from the more traditional light water reactors we've been discussing and that are in operation today? Okay, so a traditional reactor has solid fuel and pins with coolant space that you pump the coolant through the interstitial space between the pins. But from a neutron's point of view, it doesn't care what arrangement it's in. It just needs to bounce around and eventually bump into another fuel atom to split. So what a molten salt reactor is, is actually a fluid fuel reactor that instead of having solid fuel, you have some kind of, well, it's a molten salt. If you take table salt and heat it up, it becomes a liquid. And you can actually dissolve significant amounts of nuclear fuel in certain salts, fluoride salts and chloride salts. And turns out they make pretty good nuclear fuel materials. And so now you have this like bucket or chamber full of a liquid fuel and the atoms inside there are splitting just like they'd be splitting in any other reactor. And you have to move the heat out somehow. And so instead of having a separate coolant, you actually just pump this fuel around and it moves out of the core and it dumps its heat through some kind of heat exchanger and then goes off to a power cycle. You know, it spins the turbine again, and then that sort of comes back in. And so you have this kind of churning soup, and that's what a molten salt reactor is. So I'd like to hit on a few points around molten salt reactors in comparison to traditional ones. Energy efficiency, waste production, the potential for accidents and meltdowns, and reactor size. So, and we can hit these in like, you know, kind of, again, very kind of Cliff's Notes ways. I'm just so excited about them when I read about them. They seem so interesting and cool. And to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, they seem like the future of nuclear technology in many ways. So when it comes to waste production, how does a molten salt reactor uh, compare to a light water reactor in terms of how much waste it produces and how efficient it is at churning through the uranium or thorium that it's using to fuel the reactor compared to a light water one. This is an important point to make right here. Which So comparing a molten salt reactor versus a light water reactor is often done, and I see this all the time kind of out on the internet, but the essential comparison isn't actually between those two reactors, but rather between the concept of a breeder reactor and a non-breeder reactor. It just so happens that a molten salt reactor is one of dozens of types of breeder reactors, and a light water reactor is one of dozens of types of non-breeder reactors. And so almost all the things you'll hear that are exciting about molten salt reactors actually come from the fact that it's a breeder reactor, which I can talk about generally, um, rather than a non-breeder reactor. There's only a few characteristics of molten salt reactors that are actually unique to molten salt. I'm sort of trying to redirect the question. No, that's fair. That's fair. So I guess my question would be then, just as a quick follow-up, and we can talk about breeder versus non-breeder, because again, Mm -hmm. your knowledge of this topic is about 10 million times more in-depth than mine is. It seems to me, though, that at least in the public imagination, and in terms of when I Google articles about nuclear technology, right? Mm Mm-hmm. There might be dozens of different kinds of breeder versus non-breeder, but the most popular ones, for whatever reason makes them popular, and maybe you can discuss Mm -hmm. why one type and the other type become more popular than others, but the other dozens of kinds of breeder and non-breeder seem to recede into the background, and then you are just left with light water versus molten salt. And I actually don't know why that is. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that when the average person like me, let's say, Googles nuclear power, those two things seem to come into the foreground and the other types that you're discussing recede. This is something I spend a lot of nighttime worrying about, you know, redditing and whatnot. So I claim that this 
dichotomy happened because of a deliberate misinformation campaign. This is slightly controversial, where somebody tried to rebrand advanced nuclear as thorium, and in particular, thorium molten salt reactors. And so molten salt reactors came along with it. And so it was done in a viral way to get big YouTube videos, lots of articles from like Wired and all sorts of people like this talking about how there's this conspiracy against this type of reactor, and it's so much better. And like, the only reason we don't have them is because it couldn't make weapons and blah, blah. And it's actually, this is all false. Um, and I, I went so far in 2014, it drove me so crazy that I made a whole section of my webpage called Thorium Myths, which could just as well be called Molten Salt Reactor Myths. And I still, to this day, direct people to it to try to sort of unpack the differences here. And so while I totally agree that when you Google it or you see something posted, people sort of talk about the miraculous capabilities of molten salt. And not to say, I mean, they are breeder reactors in general do have borderline miraculous capabilities, but it's not the molten salt, it's the breeding. And molten salt is one of many that can breed is the reality. And I guess my big problem with this is that, you know, the technology readiness of a molten salt reactor is not terrible because we've run two of them a long time ago, but it's also not phenomenal. There's plenty of room to run into technological challenges and various issues as you go along. So I don't think people should focus on the thing that we know least about as as the potentially best reactor. Like we simply cannot know what the best reactor is, even given the concept of a molten salt reactor. And in fact, there's plenty of reasons to think molten salt reactors. Um, no reactor is perfect, and there are pros and cons of all reactors. And from my understanding, there's no like clear superior reactor, including molten salt reactors. Sorry if that's not what you're expecting. <laughs> no, it's it's totally fine. I mean, I didn't bring you on to agree yeah. with my lack yeah. of information. I, I brought you on because you know what the hell you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But let's take the things that I've read about molten salt reactors, and then you mm -hmm. can compare those to sure. just breeder reactors in general. And right, you let right. me know if the things that I'm talking about in terms of safety and efficiency and stuff yep. about molten salt apply to all breeders. And then we can compare kind of breeder versus non-breeder in general. So the things that I've read about molten salt reactors and again, I'll just get through it and then you can point out where and if I'm wrong. And maybe when I'm saying molten salt, I'm actually talking about all breeders, but I'll, I'll leave that to you. Mm -hmm. I've heard that molten salt reactors are much more efficient in terms of the amount of uranium or I suppose thorium that they're able to use before they have to turn the rest into waste. That's an advantage that I've heard. I've heard that the potential for accidents and meltdowns is almost null because that molten salt mixture can just be deposited into um, kind of a, a containment center underneath. And then as the molten salt cools. I mean, it's literally, I've read it's literally impossible for a molten salt reactor to melt down. And I've also read that reactor size, that molten salt reactors, and maybe this is a breeder reactor thing, that molten salt reactors can be modular and small, that you could have a molten salt reactor that's the size of an automobile that could power 500 homes. And because it's smaller, it can be staffed by fewer people. And you don't need all like the crazy amounts of containment and cement blocks everywhere. Those are the things that I've read. So mm -hmm. how am I wrong if I'm wrong? And how many of the things that I have said that might be right would apply to breeder reactors in general? Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's go through them. These are great. So I've seen all these same things. So the first one is just fuel utilization or resource efficiency. That's absolutely breeders. Breeders are capable of getting 
somewhere around 100 times more energy out of the fuel than a traditional non-breeder reactor. Let's just say a light water reactor. That's universal to breeders. And in fact, non... um, I just want to cut in here because just to the average person, breeder, when they think of it in their mind, I don't know if they know what that means. So when you're talking about breeding and breeders, can you just real quickly summarize what breeding and breeders mean? So, So a breeder reactor is a type of reactor that doesn't just use the enriched uranium atoms, but it actually slowly converts some of the other atoms that are around there into fuel nuclides. So the major example is if you dig uranium up out of the ground, it comes in two different types, two isotopes. Uranium-235 is 0.7% of the atoms in your pile of uranium. And the rest is this heavier isotope called uranium-238. It has three more neutrons. So uranium-235 is the nuclear fuel. If a neutron hits it, it splits and it can have a chain reaction. And if a neutron hits uranium-238, it does not split. It doesn't make more energy. It kind of looks like it just absorbed the neutron and that was it. But it turns out that over a period, it will turn into plutonium-239, which is a very good nuclear fuel. And so the word breeding kind of is a strange concept, but you're actually breeding new fuel. You're really converting uranium-238 non-fuel into plutonium-239 real fuel. And with thorium, it's it's perfectly analogous. You're converting non-fuel thorium-232 into phenomenal nuclear fuel uranium-233. And it's the same thing. Thorium absorbs a neutron and, and then transmutes naturally over some time. So this was recognized early on. In the 40s, the scientists said, well, geez, there isn't enough uranium on Earth to make any meaningful power without using breeder reactors. And so one of the first reactors ever built was called the Experimental Breeder Reactor. It's a museum now in Idaho, if you're ever driving through the Snake River Valley. And they proved that indeed this concept of breeding, converting uranium atoms into plutonium to make more fuel could work. So these breeder reactors unlock true sustainability for nuclear fuel to the point that you can actually run, um, if you use all the uranium that you can actually extract out of the ocean, you can run current total world energy consumption for about 4 billion years off of the uranium as long as if you're using breeder reactors. Wow. And it's similar order of magnitude with thorium. But any breeder reactor unlocks that unbelievable borderline renewable source of energy. I mean, the sun itself will run out of nuclear fusion fuel in like 6 billion years. And so I would say that uranium in breeders or thorium in breeders is as renewable as anything derived from sunlight. So if I understand it correctly, the difference between a breeder and a non-breeder reactor is that a breeding reactor takes initially non-fissile material and it breeds it into fissile material versus a non-breeder reactor, which requires already fissile material to work? Precisely. Okay, great. I understand you now. Okay. Fantastic. So if we're talking (laughs) then again about breeder versus non-breeder reactors and the benefits of, let's say, breeding reactors. You've already mentioned they're much more efficient at consuming the material that they're using to produce energy and therefore create a lot less waste. Is that what you were talking about? That's right. Because you're extracting a higher percentage of the energy out of the material before you're classifying that material as waste, you get a lot more electricity or heat per mass of waste to the tune of roughly 10 times less waste um, in most, most types of breeder reactors. And another interesting thing you can do with certain types of breeder reactors, particularly fast neutron ones, but a little bit with thorium as well, you can change the waste in a way that it 
decays more rapidly. You burn the, the long-lived nuclides, and the only things that remain hazardous, instead of taking 100,000 years to become non-hazardous, they take maybe 500 or 1,000 years. So your deep geologic repository can have a simpler design if you use a breeder reactor that has that kind of waste treatment. Regarding waste, I just want to put a pin on this particular fact that you were talking about. I want to harken back to that waste production that you mentioned right at the start, Mm -hmm. where you said that with a traditional, let's say, light water reactor as an example of a non-breeding reactor, if nuclear power was to power an entire 88-year-old person's life from birth to death, it would create about one and a half soda cans of waste. But a breeding reactor, if we take that same 88-year-old individual from birth to death, would create 10 times less waste than one and a half soda cans of it? Exactly. Damn. (laughs) That's very little waste. (laughs) Very little. Indeed. And so, and I mean, so many countries have gone through large and significant breeder reactor national programs, and most of them have actually run into trouble just because breeding in general is a little bit complex. It's more complex than just having a reactor that just burns enriched fuel. And so in the United States, the project was called the Clinch River Breeder Reactor Project. And it was very high level. Multiple presidents went through it. It was, it was basically a household name. It sort of boondoggled. And that, I think, is why when people think of breeders now, they try to not just say breeder reactors. They're trying to say because they may think there's still a negative association with breeding and those big projects. Um, and so that's kind of where Thorium has popped up as like a niche, new and magical thing. But of course, it's not. It's, it's another breeder reactor program, similar to Clinch River, but a little bit different. It sounds to me like one of the things that perhaps the main thing that has kept breeder reactors, which it seems across all metric, aside from complexity, which is what I'm about to get to, it seems across every metric, they're superior to light water reactors, except that they're seemingly much more complex to build. And that that was one of the things that kept it from gaining popularity in terms of the nuclear reactors that we use today. Is that is that about right? In that it basically yeah. beats non-breeding reactors across almost every metric, except for the very important part of they're just very complex to create and maintain. Yeah, that's pretty much accurate. I mean, two things happened. As we were trying to build out breeder reactors in the early days, um, the first thing that happened was that uranium prospecting became a big deal. And it turns out there's an I Love Lucy from 1958 where they're going out mining uranium in, in the TV show. So it turns out there was vastly more uranium on Earth than the very early estimates. And so the pressure to have to breed in order to produce meaningful amounts of nuclear electricity fell off. There was no need to breed. And even to this day, we aren't really low on uranium at the rates we're consuming it. And then the other part was that, yes, as we tried building different types of breeder reactors, molten salt, liquid metal, gas-cooled, they all ran into various technological challenges. Not to say they're insurmountable. And in fact, once developed, they may indeed perform better and be simpler to build and operate. But just to get through this technological hurdle to climb the mountain of knowledge and then sort of ride it out has been more challenging. The light water reactors are very simple and they use water as a pretty well-known working fluid. And most of the breeders, you know, if you're using molten salt at 600 degrees Celsius or liquid metal sodium or liquid lead, these are a little bit more exotic materials. And you can't just go to the store and buy a valve that works at 650 Celsius in a molten salt environment. So those kind of technological challenges are very real. I mean, that's kind of why we have a bunch of light water reactors right now that aren't breeding. 
So full disclosure, in my mind, I had kind of thought that, and and this is why I don't have a degree and you do, is I thought that just based on what I'd read, that molten salt reactors were the future and that they had all these additional benefits. But it sounds to me like the answer for our nuclear future, in addition to continuing to research the breeder and molten salt reactor, which is a, a type of breeder technology, it sounds to me like the argument that you're making is that... We already have fantastic non-breeder reactors that are safe, that we can build more cheaply, and that it would be easier for us to proliferate that technology now while we're researching the MSRs and things like that, but that it sounds like the answer is already here. It's not that we need to transition to MSRs and other breeders, but that non-breeder reactors like light water and whatnot, those are the answer we're seeking. I do believe that to a pretty strong degree in in the sense that like if we need to decarbonize as soon as possible, then let's use the technology that we have right now that we know works great. You know, the waste problem is, is effectively solved. The safety is completely appropriate. On the other hand, it's totally it's also completely appropriate to be searching or researching and developing breeder reactors today for two reasons. One is that if we do power 50% of the world's power from nuclear, you will challenge the nuclear fuel resources. And so you will have to switch to breeders if you assume, you know, a 10 times expansion in nuclear power. And so they better be ready by the time you need that. And then the other one is because of the, some of the project development delivery challenges of large light water reactors, if indeed someone can push an advanced reactor so that it is it can be delivered more reliably and it's cheaper to build, if you can get there, then that's going to also help in this whole story. But so I sort of see them as like independent forks. Like you shouldn't be saying, oh, forget about light water reactors, just focus on these advanced reactors. You really should be saying, okay, we need to build as many light water reactors as humanly possible, as well as as many solar panels and wind farms and dams and batteries, you know, to decarbonize these, whatever, 600 exajoules per year that we use. (laughs) Um, And meanwhile, like if there's groups who are interested in developing the next step, I have no qualms about that. In fact, that's what I've done professionally for many years and, and it's totally appropriate. So before we get to the final question that I ask every guest that comes on, are there any myths around you know, nuclear technology that you haven't busted on this show that you want to really quickly? And additionally, are there any benefits of nuclear technology that we haven't touched on in this show that you want to give a shout out to? Because I think as we've discussed leading up to the show, the kind of main purpose I think we both want is for it to be a way to disseminate all the great information that exists about nuclear technology that a lot of people are not familiar with, and also to kind of bust any myths that could be sitting inside people's minds, a few of which you've busted in mine already around (laughs) salt reactors. So just before we get to that final question, are there any additional things you want to say about nuclear technology while you're on the show? One thing that didn't come up that I really am excited about is this concept to sort of help project delivery that a few countries are looking into, which is to use shipyard construction techniques to build floating large nuclear reactors, maybe large, maybe small. But this is actually a really interesting concept that China, Russia, Korea are looking into. And we actually looked into in the United States back in the 70s. And it's interesting because it allows you to basically Henry Ford, a big nuclear power plant. 
you know, you have this controlled construction environment, people go home, they aren't working in some remote area, the processes and equipment needed to sort of erect all the structures are permanent and in place, and they can be used from one plant to the next to the next. So you don't have to keep rebuilding them on each site. And it really sort of has an interesting potential to solve some of the major problems with project delivery. And running a nuclear plant on a floating platform, an offshore nuclear plant is a little bit crazy sounding, but it does decouple you from earthquakes. There's no tsunamis when you're in deep water. You're very intimately connected to a heat sink in the ocean in case you have some kind of other cooling issue. And so there are, it's a little bit exotic sounding, but it has been looked at fairly significantly. And if you can't stomach that, just delivering the plant on a barge and then embedding it in the land at the site is potentially a very exciting way to build hundreds and hundreds of nuclear plants very, very quickly and very, very cost effectively. So in terms of rapid decarbonization, that right there is one of my favorite concepts. Other than that, I think you asked all the good questions. So I think we covered most of the other stuff. I try. I guess my one question, because what you just talked about was so cool, and I actually had no familiarity with it. If you have a nuclear reactor in the middle of the ocean in deep water, I'm just trying to figure out how would you deliver the power from the (laughs) reactor to the mainland? Because with something like oil in deep water, you have a deep water oil rig, but then you package up the oil and then you ship it to the mainland and then you put it, you know, so how, how would you connect it to the grid? Yeah. So subsea electrical cables, um, uh-huh. which can go, you know, in certain, you know, if you go to Indonesia where they're piping electricity all over the place, I mean, there's plenty of the, the subsea electrical cables of very high capacity are a fully developed technology. And, and these wouldn't be running out in the middle of the ocean. They'd be maybe 10 kilometers offshore or so um, just where the water's deep enough to not have any tsunami effects or anything. So subsea cable 10 kilometers is basically no big deal. Well, okay then. So to get to our final question, and it might seem a little out of the left field because we've been talking about a very technical issue today, but I would be remiss if I didn't Mm -hmm. give you the benefit of answering the question I asked to everyone else. We are limited as individuals in all sorts of ways. We're limited in our time, in our energy, uh, no pun intended, and often in our capacity for empathy, right? I mean, even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of everyone else, every group of people, either abstract or personal, all the time. It's just impossible. So is there someone, you know, maybe perhaps in your life or a group of people, maybe people ignorant about thorium or breeder reactors in your life or in the world at large right now that you would just like to take a moment and offer empathy to? To keep it topical, I I would like to offer empathy to anti-nuclear activists of today and of the past. I think in general, they're very well-meaning people who are trying to protect the world and, and establish an identity in a way that can you know, be towards something they really believe in. And they've, for various reasons, decided that nuclear technology is what they want to be fighting against. This has certainly caused plenty of problems for um, the effort that I've been trying to do, which is, of course, you know, climate change with nuclear technology. But I do feel like trying to bridge that gap would be really interesting and sort of establish a common understanding. I mean, the environmentalist nuclear technologist is pretty common these days. A lot of people like me got into it because we wanted to help climate change. And so I think it'd be nice if maybe pro-nuclear people like me could actively express more empathy to that basic group of people and see if we can reestablish some trust or in it together. Nick, thank you so much for coming on today and for busting some myths, even ones that I've held myself and not knowing it. 
and for talking about the real upsides to a technology that often goes undercovered and misunderstood. So thank you again for your time and for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 